Welcome to the Lover's Lounge podcast, where we talk to experts and other guests on topics related to love, relationships, and sex. I am your host, Tina Love, and on this episode is Harvard-educated family law attorney, Aaron Thomas. Over the years, Aaron has tried to reverse engineer the commonalities of a successful relationship, particularly surrounding money. He analyzes the problems that affect relationships before they happen, and he often helps couples to craft prenups to plan for their happy marriage rather than divorce. Aaron, I am so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we're going to have an interesting conversation, I think, because uh, unfortunately, the issue of divorce um, has... I don't know. It's really been a big deal in the past, what, year and a half with the pandemic. Like, I understand, you know, uh, divorce attorneys are reporting that their business skyrocketed during the pandemic and maybe still, you know, um, as they are working through Absolutely. all of these divorces. So I want to get into that. Um, but before we start, um, I'd like for you to tell the audience just a little bit about yourself um, you know, you had an interesting journey in law that led you uh, to where you are today. So I'd like to hear your, you know, kind of walk us through, you know, your career, because it's so interesting, and then where you are today. So yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I went to law school, uh, graduated in 2002. So I'm coming up on, on 20 years uh, practicing law. Um, and gosh, it's flown by. But you know, I, I went to law school assuming that I would get out and work for the biggest, baddest firm in New York that I could find um, and, and live happily ever after. Um, and after spending, uh, you know, one summer in New York working for one of these, you know, big corporate law firms, um, I realized that that was absolutely not going to be for me. Um, and so after law school, I moved back down to Georgia where I'd gone to college, where I'd done my undergrad. And I spent two years in-house working for Habitat for Humanity, um, figuring I can at least do some good uh, while I try to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and then decided I wanted to you know, help individuals, that I wanted to be face-to-face -face with my clients. And I went and spent three years at a public defender's office um, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and really kind of honed my, my trial skills. You know, you're in court you know, almost every day as a public defender and, um, you know, dealing with people going through one of the toughest times of their lives. And then when I was ready to kind of go out into private practice, I was recruited by a family law firm who they needed someone who could try cases. And so that is when I started practicing family law back in 2007. And that's what I've been doing since then, 14 years now. Wow. That is, that, that's really, really, really interesting. So I don't know, like, did you, were you kind of like had an interest in this, even though it just kind of worked out that way? I mean, were you genuinely wanting to go into divorce and family law and all this? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I stumbled into it. You know, no one thinks of yeah. divorce law as the kind of thing that children, Wanted you know, to. dream about doing right, I know. <laughs> when I know. they grow up. Um, but, you know, for my time at the public defender's office, I, I, you know, found or at least believed that I had a talent for being in the courtroom, yeah. um, you know, for kind of thinking on my feet, for talking, you know, in front of the judge and the jury. And I, 
you know, I got a lot of satisfaction out of that. And family law, for better or for worse, puts you in the courtroom more than any other kind of, you know, civil litigation. So, you know, even though I didn't specifically have uh, an interest in family law before, you know, once I got recruited um, into it, I realized that I could, um, that I could do some good for people, that I could, you know, meet people at one of the toughest times in their life um, and, and try to make things a little bit easier to try to kind of hold their hand and, and walk them, you know, to the end and, and show them that there's, you know, there's life after this stressful, difficult situation and, um, you know, help them try to preserve relationships with children, you know, the yeah. money they'd save for retirement, you know, the life they've worked to build. And right. so right. You know, yeah. I find it kind of an honor to, to work with people going through a tough time. Yeah. So what do you think? Um, I, I mentioned in the, uh, you know, opener before we started that the pandemic, I, I know I'd heard that the filing of divorces had gone up, like domestic issues, domestic abuse, uh, all these things were just really coming to the surface. Um, was that the case for you? And, and how are things right now for you as far as, you know, divorce filings, your business, what's going on? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been 100% the case for me, exactly what you said, um, you know, new divorce filings are, are through the roof. Um, you know, we're expanding, the, um, you know, people are, are coming, you know, the phone is ringing off the hook and it really has not slowed down um, since last spring. Um, I think, you know, my analysis of what's happened is that um, issues that were kind of hiding under the surface in a lot of relationships got pushed to the forefront. You know, you, you, you're no longer got, you know, both spouses or one spouse, you know, leaving the house every morning and coming back in the evening. You can't just, you know, skip to the bar and hang out with your friends rather than go home and, and you know, talk to your spouse. And uh, it just became kind of a pressure cooker situation. You know, whatever was going on in people's households got intensified from what I could tell, you know, for some, Households, it was great. You know, people got to spend more time with their families and, you know, really enjoyed that time. And for others, I think it forced some couples who may have otherwise been able to avoid facing some of the issues um, in their relationships, um, kind of kind of push those issues to the forefront. And, you know, unfortunately, um, it's, it's made a lot of those relationships end in a divorce. Right, 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 right. I agree. I, I think everybody that I ask that question generally says the same thing. And, and I think you're right. It, it's just intensified, you know, um, with the lock, lock up and lock down, lock up, lock down. Uh, you know, people were just kind of stressed. And like you said, things that were kind of there, they just kind of amplified, you know, now that I'm seeing you all day long, every day, you know, there's no break. Uh, it's just kind of coming out. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. So I've always been told um, that, and I, I just because I've worked in churches uh, with pastors and, you know, they're talking to couples, you know, before divorce and those kinds of things. And I remember uh, one of my pastors a long time ago saying that um, there were a couple of things that he said would always come up when couples were having issues or problems, some of the most common problems. And he said it would all relate around sex and money. So what, what do you say are some of the most common problems that affect marriages and, and lead them to contemplating divorce or getting divorced? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And I think that 
there's definitely something to those two answers. I mean, finances and then, you know, sex, whether it's, you know, sex in the marriage or the lack thereof or infidelity. Um, you know, those are issues that come up in, in probably the majority of divorces that I do. But I would take it a step further. I mean, I think a lot of the problems in, in the relationships and the divorces that I see, it, at, you know, in one way or another come down to communication. Um, you know, if, it, if it's a, a sexless, sexless marriage, maybe, it, you know, people weren't communicating their needs beforehand. Um, you know, with finances, it's almost always, you know, communication. Um, you know, couples have different spending patterns and they don't discuss how to address them or, or what's the framework that they're going to use to handle their finances or uh, people committing what I call financial infidelity, right? Where one, one spouse is spending without the other one's knowledge or uh, one figures out that the other spouse has 25 grand of credit card debt that they didn't know about. Um, I think I think in one way or another, a lot of the relationship breakdowns I see really stem back to a lack of communication. Yeah. And it's interesting because you said just in one of your examples, you said uh, one of the spouses is spending uh, with the out the other person's knowledge. So there are probably people um, I know in my marriage before. I don't think he really thought he needed to tell me about a major purchase or whatever, <laughs> even though it's a major purchase. I ain't going to get started on that. I ain't going to get started, Aaron, on that. But anyway, he didn't think he really needed to tell me about that. I mean, so what do you say about this? Like, do you think couples should be discussing what they are purchasing, whether it's large purchases or small purchases? Should they be on the same page, Aaron, about what they're purchasing? Just your opinion. A absolutely. And, and, and not just for, you know, the, the kind of obvious benefits of, you know, establishing good communication in the marriage and having respect for your spouse by, you know, discussing things that can impact the other one. But legally, you know, when you get married, you know, and a lot of people I don't think fully understand this, when you get married, the law basically looks at you as though you are one financial entity. Um, and so, you know, the money that one spouse earns, that paycheck that you bring home the first week after your wedding is considered marital money. Um, and it doesn't matter whose name is on a bank account, whose name is on a retirement account, on a car, on a house that you're paying a mortgage on. All of those things are, are considered marital assets or marital debt. Uh, regardless of whether both spouses' names are on them. And so a lot of times, you know, people only discover it in the middle of a divorce. And they come to me and say, what do you mean she wants half my retirement? Or what do you mean he wants <laughs> half of the house? I'm the one who's been paying the mortgage this whole time. Right. What do you mean he wants half of my house? And I have to say, it's not it's not your house. It's, it's y'all's house. And I'm from the South. It's y'all's house. So, um, you know, and it struck me that, you know, maybe if people were educated on, you know, the reality of their finances after, you know, once they get married, maybe if people were educated on that kind of thing at the beginning of their marriage, maybe they would treat things differently. Maybe they wouldn't be as secretive about their spending or about their income or their assets if they knew from the beginning um, that, that the law looks at it like these are all joint assets. So in effect, any spending you do is a joint decision. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So that, that's part of the mission I'm on is, is to kind of educate people mm-hmm. about that reality. Very good. And, and thank you so much uh, because I do. I, I think <laughs> that even right now, somebody's eyebrows raised because uh, this is a newsflash for some folks. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that, hey, you know, I'm grown. I work this job. I make this amount of money. So I ain't got to tell this person about what I'm getting ready to spend. But you know what I mean? They just don't know. Right, they right. just they don't know. And they just don't see themselves, uh, you know. And that's, yeah, they don't see themselves coming together as one. And that now, you know, I got this other person that I need to communicate with. And uh, you're, yeah, you're so right. You're so right. So how do you yeah. how do you work with couples to sort of prevent this? Because I'm, I'm hearing you say, you know, you're this is sort of your mission. You've been trying to educate so tell me about your work in trying to help couples to sort of understand this, maybe to prevent this situation from happening. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, if, if I can go back to where, you know, the idea first started, I, you know, I began practicing family law in, in 2007. So right before the big housing crisis um, that, that hit everybody's finances, you know, in 2008 and 2009. And so I watched you know, couple after couple come in um, where their finances have been devastated. Um, and, you know, it, it, it terrified me. I had not been married at the time. And, and at first I was like, I would tell my friends and anyone else who would listen, don't get married. Just do not get married. You have no idea what you're signing up for. I was like, move in together. You can have a party. You can wear a white dress. You can throw rice in the air. But don't get that legal marriage license because you have no idea what you're signing up for. Um, but, but then as I learned more, my, my, my opinion kind of evolved and I realized that a lot of the problems that couples were having were number one, predictable and number two, preventable. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of, you know, just like you were talking about the communication issues that people have over finances. Um, I realized that a lot, the same kind of financial arguments would come up over and over and, um, there are tried and true ways that couples can manage their finances and kind of navigate this, this union of their financial lives um, in a healthier way than the way I would see couples do it. So, you know, for example, a lot of people don't know, you know, so I began, I, I had the idea, what would, you know, a prenuptial agreement look like that was healthy. What if what would you put in an agreement at the beginning of the marriage to try to prevent a lot of the money arguments, the money fights that I would see couples have that would tear their marriages down over the years? Um, and so I, I tried to kind of like reverse engineer like what what a healthy financial relationship with your spouse would look like and put that in the contract form. So, you know, first, transparency. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but for a prenuptial agreement to be enforceable, both spouses have to disclose all of their assets and debts to the other spouse and their income. Um, and you would be surprised, well, maybe not you, Tina, but a lot of people I think would be surprised how many people can be married for two decades and have no idea what their spouse makes in money, makes an in income. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what the other person's assets are, what their debts are. Um, because they just, they've kept it private the entire time. And, you know, by having this information traded at the very beginning of the marriage, what I think that does is it establishes, you know, that this is going to be the default, you know, radical transparency with each other. Everything is right on the table. Everyone's, you know, the cells are an open book. And to kind of like create that as a practice intentionally at the beginning of the marriage. 
you know, this trading of information. And then the next part is how are you going to handle your finances during the marriage? Um, and, and this part is huge. I mean, there's so many questions that people often do not answer at the beginning of a relationship. You know, is, is all of, is, are both spouses' incomes going to go into one account and they pay their bills from there? Are their incomes going to separate accounts and oh, they each yeah. kind of, you know, pay their own bills or contribute oh, to a joint account, yeah. you know, in some kind of proportion, <laughs> right? Or, or say one spouse owns a house before the marriage. Is, are, the, are the bills for that house going to be paid by both spouses? And if so, does the other spouse get kind of an ownership interest in the house? Do they, do they get a say on whether you sell it or keep it? Um, uh, are there going to be rules for discussing expenditures? You know, for example, do you have to discuss any expenses over $250, over $500, over $1,000 with your spouse? Uh, what will you do if one spouse is a spender and the other one's a saver? Ooh. I mean, that, that question alone breaks up marriages every single day. And there are ways to address those kinds of issues ahead of time. Um, so, you know, I try to help couples, you know, navigate these types of questions and come up with a plan so that they have an agreement on how they're going to handle their finances and it doesn't turn into a fight, you know, five, six, 10, 20 years down the line. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, you know, one spouse is a spender and the other one's a saver. One thing that couples may do is um, say they'll have all of their income go into a joint account and each, each spouse will also have their own separate account. And all of the bills get paid from the joint account and then each spouse gets an allowance, say, you know, $1,000 per spouse or $500 per spouse. And um, that money, each spouse's allowance, quote unquote, goes into their own separate account and then they can spend it on whatever they want. So, you know, in my relationship, you know, my, my wife is a lawyer as well. And we drafted our own prenup together to kind of address some of these issues on the front end. So, you know, if I get $1,000, she gets $1,000. And she can spend hers on whatever she wants, and I can spend mine on whatever I want. But there's a limit to how much money can be spent without the other one's approval. Any money that's spent from the joint account has to be discussed ahead of time if it's over, you know, a certain amount of money. Um, and so... You know, in, in a situation like this, you know, one, you know, my wife is probably a lot more likely to go out to eat, you know, to go get her, eat out for lunch. I'm probably more of a brown bag person. Uh, and so she may spend a lot more on food, whereas I might, you know, look at that and be like, ah, that's a waste. You can just, you know, you can take your, 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 your lunch to work and, and not have to, you know, rack up $20 every day at lunch. Um, but I don't see those expenses because they come from her own account. And on the other side, you know, I'm the kind of I'm the kind of person where I gotta have the new phone every year. You know, the new iPhone is coming out. I'm gonna have it every year, and she <laughs> might think it's a waste because right. you know the, the last one's working fine. It's not broken. It you know, is, you don't yeah. need to buy it. But but because we have our own money, we can spend on our own what's important to us without oversight by the other person, and also without breaking the bank because there's a limit because we've gotten an allowance. And so that's just that's just one of the ways that we try to help couples avoid the predictable preventable money fights on the front end of their relationship yeah wow there there's so much to that i mean i i had a guy on and i i can't his name is escaping me right now i can see his face but he's been on my show previously and he talked about some of the issues i mean that's just what he does he counsels couples or really gets couples together to you know do a game plan like you and your wife do um because not everybody you know we're not 
attorney and attorney, you know, marriages or whatever. So you guys kind of have the, right. the mindset, I guess, you know, to be, you know, okay, let's, let's analyze this. Let's be logical. Let's figure out how we want to do this. But then there are others that, you know, they just live and they're just like, whatever, you know, and they don't come up with those plans ahead of time. And so this gentleman that was on my show, he did, he, he makes that a habit of talking to couples all the time. That's a part of his business to help them with that plan. And we talked a little bit about, you know, why aren't people forthcoming in the very beginning about their, you know, transparent about their habits, their financial habits. And um, why do people kind of withhold that information? And, you know, um, do you have an opinion uh, about it? Why do you think people really aren't forthcoming or don't really want to talk about that and lay all those things out on the table in the very beginning? Maybe not ever. Like you said, there are some that are married for years and they still don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a good question. I, I think that our society has made discussing money so taboo, you know, so uncomfortable. I mean, a lot of us grew up in, in houses where, you know, our parents didn't talk to us about money. You know, we learned everything, you know, once we got out in college and, and made our own financial decisions. But a lot of people's households, you know, they don't know what their parents earned or the parents didn't discuss it with them. You know, money things, you know, money is not really discussed in school. You know, you learn you learn English and math and, you know, social studies, but you're not really learning personal financial habits in school. And so, um, and, and when people get married, you know, you're thinking about planning the wedding. You're thinking about having children. You're thinking about, you know, romance and the honeymoon and, and spending your life together. And it seems more of a chore to have to sit down and and discuss um you know the sometimes uncomfortable money parts and yeah. so well, yeah i've got i've got some student loans you know <laughs> i've got a little more credit cards than you may think and mm -hmm. and people are embarrassed and so the the default is just to ignore it just to, just to push it under the rug and, and hope it doesn't cause a problem but but as you know that is not the same thing as a a healthy solution yeah you the hit money issue. Yeah, the nail on the head there. The word embarrassment. I, I think there is some shame and embarrassment. I think at the end of the day, you know, we know, we know ourselves what our strengths are and we know what our weaknesses are. And if you have a weakness around, you know, around money and finance, you know what those little buttons are that maybe are not so pretty and you don't want to discuss it. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, if you don't discuss it and it, it's going to come out, you know, it's bound to come out. Uh, during the marriage. And so, yeah, it's going to come out. It is. It's just going to, yeah. come out. It, it has no choice, you know? So anyway, but anyway, so somebody's yeah. listening right now who, you know, they can totally relate to what we're saying. Like they probably, you know, they're like, yep, uh, we're past that point. Like it's, I'm, I'm thinking of calling it quits. Like it, it's time, it's time for divorce. Um, so how does a person look for an attorney such as yourself, or what are some of those things that they need to look for when they're trying to approach divorce and trying to find somebody to help them with it? Yeah, yeah. So there's there's a few things, there's a few tips if you're looking to find an attorney. Um, and you know, one thing that I can tell you that's important is is finding someone that specializes in family law. That may sound obvious, but um, you know, there's a difference between an attorney who practices family law and criminal law and personal injury and perhaps your will and, you know, will take you to small claims court and all of that and someone who specializes in family law. 
Um, and you're going to almost always be better off with someone who has developed a specialist in family law. They will have seen more situations. They may know the other family law attorneys in your area, know how the different judges are going to treat, you know, custody or alimony in your particular situation. So you want to find a specialist. Um, and you also want to find someone that, that's going to be a good fit. I mean, this is going to be someone, you know, your attorney in your divorce case is going to be someone that's going to learn about the most private issues that you have in your life. Um, you know, infidelity and your money problems and why your marriage is breaking down. And they need to be someone that you feel comfortable, you know, talking to. And so, you know, getting on there and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and speaking with the attorney and seeing if it feels good, seeing if it's a good fit, if this is someone that, that, uh, that you can feel comfortable talking to. And then you've got to go and look at the reviews. You know, it's, it's, it's 2021 now. Everyone's got, you know, Google reviews or a Yelp page. Um, and you can see what other people who have worked with that attorney say about them. And so certainly you want to take advantage of other people's experiences with their, with the attorney. Do they, do they return phone calls quickly or do people have trouble getting in touch with them? Um, and that might even be a, a good test is, you know, after you're, after you meet and have a consultation with, you know, a couple of attorneys, email them both and ask them for some information and see how long it takes them to get back to you. Um, and that might be a good indication as to whether or not you're going to be able to get in touch with your attorney uh, once your case starts and once you've actually paid the money to hire the lawyer. Very good. Yeah, some great. So those are just a few. Yeah, those are just a few ideas. Great points. Yeah. And so you've I've heard the term thrown around, uh, you know, is it a contested divorce or is it an uncontested divorce? So uh, I really want to make this show as simple as possible, you know, break this down for people who, you know, they may have not gone through this before. They've never had a divorce like this is their first time. They don't know. And so I want to really, I may be asking some questions definitely that I know the answer to or that, you know, most people do, but then you, there could be some people that don't. So what's the difference between contested and uncontested divorce? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a good question because it's, it's misunderstood by a lot of people. So an uncontested divorce is a divorce case where both spouses agree on how all of the issues should be resolved. That's, that's alimony, that's custody, that's child support, that's the division of any assets and debts. If you have an agreement on all of those issues, then you have an uncontested divorce. If there's even one area where you've not reached, yet reached agreement, then that's technically going to be a contested divorce. Now, sometimes a contested divorce can be worked out pretty quickly and get you to something that looks very similar to an uncontested divorce. But unless you agree on, on literally everything, then it's a contested divorce. An uncontested divorce, what that looks like is, one, it's going to be a whole lot cheaper. Um, you can go have an attorney basically just draft up the documents for, for the settlement, draft up the settlement agreement, the parenting plan, the child support uh, worksheet. Um, and, and, and you're basically just filing the case. It's you know, grand opening and grand closing. You're filing the settlement agreement at pretty much the same time that you're, that you're filing for a divorce. Um, and like I said, it's going to be less expensive, less stressful, um, and, and relatively quick. Uh, and a contested divorce is typically going to cost many, many multiples of uh, an uncontested divorce. And the more issues where there is disagreement, the more uh, money it's going to end up costing and the more it can drag out, yeah. um, uh, both time-wise and emotion-wise. Right. Okay. All right. Now, I, I know that... 
you know, there's a lot of different terms to sort of describe the sort of divorce maybe that you're getting or that it's going to result in. So anyway, just as an example, I've heard the term dissolution marriage. So how do you know whether you should request for a dissolution marriage? Like what is it and how do you know that you ought to request for that or not? Yeah, so, so you know, a, a marital dissolution, I, I think for the most part is, is just another name for divorce. I think it's a little bit of a euphemism that sometimes people will say a dissolution of marriage. Um, so they're not using, you know, kind of the D word, the divorce word. Um, you know, the, the other type of, of marital, but there is, there are other types of marital dissolution. So you could have an annulment. Those are very rare. Um, typically, you know, the, the marriage is very, very young and the marriage should not be valid for one of a few reasons, either, you know, uh, one person was already married and so it's not a valid marriage or, you know, one person was underage or the marriage was never consummated, meaning the couple never had marital relations, uh, and maybe it was very short. So there can be an annulment. So that can be, you know, a marital dissolution. That's not a divorce, but again, those are going to be very rare. And if you have that type of situation. Um, you probably know, you know, that, you know, wait, is, is a divorce really appropriate? Because we really never even got off the ground here. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, you know, it's, it's, you're probably just talking about a divorce. Yeah. What's the, I know I've also heard of uh, irreconcilable differences, you know, due to irreconcilable differences. So, like, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what exactly, break it down, does that mean? I kind of, I mean, I know, but I want everybody to Sure. Know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so for the, for the listeners here, you know, irreconcilable differences means that you are talking about a no fault divorce uh, versus a fault divorce. So, um, you know, in all fifty states now, um, no fault divorces are legal. Um, it used to be that in order to divorce someone, you had to you had to basically show that the other person was at fault in some way. And every state had a list of different faults that you could file for divorce under. So for example, infidelity um, or abuse or abandonment, um, all of those would be, um, or drunkenness even, you know, intoxication, or if somebody has gone to prison, you know, you had to kind of show that the other person had committed some kind of fault in order uh, to get the divorce. And then you know, as the decades went along in the 50s, 60s, 70s, more and more states started allowing no-fault divorces because, uh, um, you know, really, I think the biggest impetus was um, there were abused spouses who felt like if they couldn't prove, you know, um, to a judge's satisfaction that they had actually been mistreated or that they had been abused, that the court could deny their divorce. And so you had you know, mostly women being stuck in abusive marriages um, for fear that they wouldn't be able to have enough evidence to even get the divorce. Um, and so it was really kind of a women's rights movement that pushed states to start allowing for no-fault divorces so that you can ask for a divorce without having to show that the other person was was actually at fault. Yeah. Um, and, and now it's just common across the country. I mean, you don't have to prove, you know, some kind of, you know, mis- um, 
you know, mistreatment or wrongdoing by the other side in order to, to get the divorce. You can just say that they reconcile the differences. In other words, you no longer get along. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I guess, I think I heard this, and maybe this is from that old school, you know, fault sort of thing, um, where it was like, okay, if you were filing for divorce, or maybe this is still valid today, you're filing for divorce, um, if you were able to show that your spouse, who you're not divorced from yet, had another person or was cheating or there was some infidelity, um, that that really was a down point for that other person and that it could be detrimental to their divorce case. Is that still the case today or was that an issue back, you know, when you were trying to get fault versus no fault? I don't know. I'm just asking. Yeah, that that is still the case today. Um, uh, you know, so for example, yeah. in Georgia, if you are the spouse that, that got caught cheating and that cheating was one of the reasons for the divorce, um, then you are no longer eligible to receive alimony at all. It, it's a complete bar to you receiving alimony. Really? Um, interestingly, there's no, there's no penalty if you were the person that had to pay alimony um, and not the recipient, then there's no penalty for you. But you cannot you know, be the cheating spouse and expect to receive alimony. And then in terms of the division of assets, there are, and it can be, you know, things vary. It can be judge by judge. It can be county by county. It can be state by state. But there are certainly, you know, uh, jurisdictions. Um, Georgia is one of them. It's an equitable division state as opposed to a community property state. Um, and there's a lot more equitable division states than there are community property states. But in, in equitable division states um, like Georgia, the courts can basically take anything into account. It means that the court has to divide your assets equitably, but that doesn't necessarily mean equally. So it could end up 50-50, but it doesn't have to. And the judges have a lot of leeway in terms of what they can consider. And I've seen some judges who are like, yep, if, if I find out that one spouse was cheating, you're getting less than half of the assets at the end of the divorce. Wow. Or if, if I found out that there was abuse you know, committed, then yes, you're getting less money you know, in the divorce. And so, um, yeah, that is, you're, you're right. That's absolutely something that, that can still happen today. Um, there are community property states where, um, you know, I think there's like nine of them, California, uh, Arizona, Texas, um, uh, the home is still reciting all of them, but there are some where essentially the court is, is limited and, and mainly is, is are going to be authorized just to kind of divide everything equally. But in most jurisdictions, uh, the courts can take into account, you know, a wide variety of things in determining, you know, what each spouse gets in the divorce. Yeah. And, and you've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, just state to state, the differences. And so, like, you know, someone's listening right now and they're in, uh, you know, Missouri or they're in, you know, Georgia or they're in Tennessee, you know, like, um, what should they do? Like, because state to state, there are different laws around this or different standards or, you know. So do you recommend that they look at their, how do they find out about each state's practices and stuff? Like how do they do that? Yeah, yeah. The, the best thing to do is, is going to be to set up a consultation with an experienced attorney in your area. Um, certainly you could do some research on your own and, you know, the, the, the internet is going to, is going to have lots of, uh, you know, reputable legal sites that you can go to and kind of get the basics. But at the end of the day, you know, if you're getting close 
to thinking about filing for divorce, or you at least want to know what your rights would be if you headed down that path, you're going to want to talk to a, an experienced local attorney. Um, because some, like a, some, some of the differences are going to be state law versus state law. And then some of the differences are going to be, well, you know, you're going to end up with one of these two judges, and this is how these two judges treat alimony. Or this is how these two judges look at custody plans. You know, some judges like 50-50 custody plans um, where children spend equal time with, with both parents. And some judges think uh, it's more important for a child to have a stable home. So, you know, they're going to prefer for one parent to kind of have every other weekend. And the children kind of spend their weeks, and just, you know, they come home and they do their homework at the same desk every night. And so those are the kinds of things where you're going to want to talk to someone local who's going to know, you know, how do, how do the courts treat my situation in my county, you know, in my city where I live? Okay. So those are, that's some of the things that you want to kind of think about or questions. What about questions that you want to kind of um, be ready to have answered uh, before you enter? Or maybe there's things that you need to compile and get together um, before you go see the attorney. What, what are some of those things? Absolutely. I mean, it is never too early to gather information. Information is power when it comes to a legal case, and especially in a, in a divorce case. And so, um, because a lot of the issues, you know, there's there's four kind of categories of issues um, that we've been talking about: alimony, dividing assets and debts, child support, and custody. And three of those four categories: alimony, child support, and dividing assets and debts have to do with your finances. And so, um, you know, I like to tell my clients, go and gather all the financial information that you that you can. You really want to put together kind of a marital balance sheet. All of the assets, whether they're in your name or your spouse's name, all of the debts, if you can get them all in one place. Uh, gather up your last few years tax returns, um, some end of the year pay stubs, your W-2, um, and get all of that information together. It's gonna to go a long way um, towards uh, letting your attorney get a head start on your case. Um, and, and in fact, it, it, it is one of the things that makes the biggest difference as to whether or not a divorce case becomes really expensive or, or really, or, or it can be, you know, relatively inexpensive. If somebody comes to me and they know all of the assets and debts, they know what each, each spouse's income is and, 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 and where all the assets are, then we can go directly into making a settlement offer and trying to get the case over with. But if somebody comes to me and they say, I don't even know where, I don't know where he banks. I don't know how much money he's got. I don't know whether he's got retirement or how much he's got in retirement. Well, then we got to spend some money. We got to start sending out teams. We got to start sending out requests for these documents. And all of those things cost money. So, um, yeah, gathering information about your finances is going to be critical. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to go in another direction and and start to talk about um, separation and you know, having children involved. I want to go down that road now. So someone's listening and they, they're they contemplating divorce. They're about to do this. Um, when they file, do they have to separate at that point from that person or can that person still continue to live with them even though they filed for divorce and they've been served? First off, that's my first question. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a really good question because people hear the word separation and, 
you know, in, in most people's minds, you're thinking, all right, I guess I got to leave, you know, I guess I got to leave the house or they've got to leave the house to separate. Um, and in, in some cases, that's going to be best either, you know, if there's obviously if there's abuse in your household, um, then, you know, you should take whatever actions to keep you and your children safe. So I want to say that part, that first. Um, but if there is, if there's not uh, a reason that someone's in danger, um, a lot of times you're not going to have to leave the house in order to be able to file for divorce. That's not what the courts are looking for in terms of separation. So, for example, in Georgia, um, the term, you know, you do have to be, quote unquote, separated in order to file for divorce. But in Georgia, what that actually means is that you are no longer having marital relations. So literally, um, and some people laugh when they hear this, the, what's considered the, quote unquote, date of separation in Georgia is the last time that the couple had sex. Um, and so you can be living in the same house, you can still be sharing the same bedroom, but you can be considered separated for the purposes of filing for divorce as long as you're no longer having marital relations. And yes, I have actually seen a case where a couple was in the courtroom and admitted to the judge that they had slept together after one spouse filed for divorce and the judge dismissed their case wow. and they had to start from the beginning and file the divorce suit all over again. My so, goodness, my um, goodness. So, you know, certainly ask, you know, an attorney in your state, but in most cases, you're not going to need to, you know, move out of the house in order to start your divorce. Okay. So tell me this, if one does decide to move out, so say for instance, you've got a, a, a man and a woman, this is a heterosexual marriage. We'll talk about same sex soon, but, um, and the, the woman the wife decides to take the kids and she leaves uh, and the, the man stays behind in the home. Uh, she takes things out of the home. Um, is it advised that you do that before any kind of agreement has been made or settlement has been made? I don't know. I'm, do you get what I'm saying? Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great question. Okay. Um, you know, normally I like to maintain the status quo as much as possible um, until a judge says that you can start taking things, you know, out of the house. And in fact, a lot of jurisdictions, once someone files for divorce, an order automatically gets issued. The judge doesn't have to look at or sign anything. An order automatically gets issued. Gets issued. That's called like a standing order. Um, or some version of the, you know, a domestic relations standing order that basically tells both spouses, keep everything status quo. You can't start draining bank accounts. You can't start, you know, selling off assets. You can't start pulling money out of your retirement. Um, you can't take the children out of state. Um, you, you don't want to do something that's going to potentially put you in a bad light with a judge. And so in your example, if, if the wife moved out, with the children and, and started taking things, you know, out of the residence, that husband's attorney might go to the court and say, look, she's depriving, you know, my client of the ability to spend time with his children. You know, he's a parent to the children just as much as she is. And not only that, she's taking things from the house. And so you wouldn't want to be in a position where, you know, maybe she has really good reasons for leaving the house with the kids, but you don't want to be in a position where, um, you know, someone can point the finger at you and say that you're doing something inappropriate, you know, before you're allowed. And what, what you're probably going to want to do is, 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 and a, you know, attorney will give you advice, but 
you may want to look into, all right, can we get in front of the judge so that a judge can determine, you know, all right, during the divorce case itself, here's going to be the rules. You live here, you live here. Here's going to be, you know, each of your parenting times with the children. And, and also, how are the bills going to be paid? You know, in your situation, if, if the wife was earning half of the income uh, and she moves out, does she still have to pay half of the mortgage, you know, for the place that she's living? Um, does, the, does the husband need to start giving her some child support if she's going to be living out of the house? So you can see there's a lot of moving parts. And rather kind of rather than leave them up in the air, you're probably going to want to have your attorney ask for a hearing with the court or try to negotiate with the other side to come up with, okay, you know, the, we, we've still got some things to work out in the divorce, but while the divorce is pending, you know, what, what's going to be the arrangement, how are the bill is going to be paid and how the children are going to be taken care of. Is that sort of how, what I've heard of a legal separation, would that be like a separation agreement or papers that are filed calling it a separation? And then at that point, really jotting down exactly, you know, what should be done like you're saying, in the interim until this thing is totally resolved or disillusioned. Is that kind of what happens? Yeah. So, so the, the, the terminology may vary, you know, from region to region. I would, I would normally call that a, uh, I call that a temporary agreement. You know, so an agreement that's happening while the case is pending would be a temporary agreement or, or if a judge issues it, it would be called a temporary order. Um, a, a legal separation um, First, they're not they're not available in every state. So, you know, for you know, a lot of states, Georgia is one of them, doesn't even have legal separation. You're you're either married or you're divorced. But in some uh, places you can have a legal separation, which means that it's kind of this third category. You're not fully divorced, but you're not really married either. You're you're, you're probably living separately. And people will sometimes do that because they may have religious beliefs that say that you can't get divorced no matter what. And so sometimes those couples will get, you know, legally separated or um, say, you know, one spouse, you know, is, is in, in desperate need of the health insurance of the other spouse. And you can't have an ex-spouse on your health insurance um, under federal law. So they may have a legal separation, kind of this third category where, um, you know, insurance can still be in place. And maybe you've got a parenting time schedule and some child support being paid. Um, but otherwise, you know, you're still considered legally married. So right. um, the terminology can be a little confusing, but that's that's normally when I how I would define that. So we might also see in that um, maybe a an agreement about the kids and their visitation, possibly. Uh, am I am I right or wrong? Uh, where the absolutely you know, okay. Yeah. So kids are going to come here every other weekend, and uh, you know, birthdays or whatever. For right now, you know. Maybe it's the same thing when the divorce is, is final, but um, at least there's some kind of, um, you know, there's a, a plan in place and everybody knows what's happening while we continue to do what we're doing. Right, right. There's a, there's a plan in place while the divorce case, you know, is going to be figured out. And, and you really don't want to kind of leave those things up to chance because then you're putting the, you know, the, the parents or the spouses in the position where, you know, they're, they're trying to figure everything out, you know, on their own day to day, you know, should the kids come over here? Should they be with me? And, you know, I mean, let's, let's be real about it. If, 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 if they were able to communicate and work that well together, they might not be getting divorced. And so, right. you know, you're taking the couple who they're in the worst position to be trying to figure out and come to an agreement on these things on their own and forcing them to come to an agreement, which is why it's, it's way more typical for, you know, attorneys to tell their clients, 
and just if you can, you know, if there, if no one's in danger, stay in the house until we can either negotiate or have a judge order what's going to be um, the day to day while the case is pending. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's important to figure that out because the average, a lot of people don't know this either, the average divorce case lasts a year. It lasts 12 months. That's an average. The average contested divorce case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the average. So there are cases that last 18, 24 months, um, which is a nightmare, obviously. But you can see why it's important to have, you know, kind of these these things put in place in terms of how the bill is going to be paid and, and how much time are the kids going to spend with these parents while the case is pending. Yeah. So I want to go to same-sex marriages. You know, um, I'm, I'm bringing this up, you know, just because... I've seen recently where, you know, same-sex marriage, they have children involved and they have to separate or, you know, they're going through this. Um, So basically it's the same, really. Is it true with same-sex marriages versus heterosexual marriages? I mean, is there a difference? Is it the same how it's all handled? Are there some different stipulations or you tell me? Or tell us. There there (laughs) may be tiny differences here and there. Um, and we do, you know, I'm, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia. We have, you know, a very large, um, you know, homosexual population. And so we do a lot of, you know, gay, lesbian, uh, divorce cases, custody cases. Um, and, um, you know, there may be some little things here and there, you know, make sure that the, the, the second parent has done a second parent adoption. But in most cases, that's already happened by the time a couple is getting divorced where, you know, kind of the legal rights of each spouse to the child uh, have, have already been established. And, and once you're at that level, the courts are going to treat it 100% exactly the same way as a heterosexual um, divorce. Um, so, you know, both parents are going to have kind of the same standing, the same rights um, to, you know, have custody uh, access. Both parents could, could be eligible for alimony the same way they would. Um, in a heterosexual marriage, the same rights apply to, you know, the division of assets and debts. And so, um, you know, the, the biggest difference, honestly, that I've seen is when we're drafting the agreement, you can't just refer to um, the parties as husband and wife in the document. We usually use their first name right. instead oh, I because see. they're both the husband or they're both the wife. Yes. Um, yes. But besides that, it is, it is really kind of, it's very much, you know, the same, the same. type of practice. Yeah. Because I, 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 I saw a situation recently where two women, they're in a lesbian marriage, and um, one woman was artificially inseminated. She had a child. Uh, they found a sperm donor, and uh, they had a child. Um, one of them was mixed. One of them was white. But they were able to find a donor, sperm donor, who was African-Americans, which made the child um, mixed, the Caucasian woman carried the baby. Of course, the baby comes out mixed. They they are about to divorce, and the African the, the mixed parent says, "You know what? I believe this child needs to be with me because I am mixed. So is the child, and uh, you know." This child's going to be able to see people like 
you know, her all the time. And, you know, so that added, that was, that's interesting. I don't know how you'd handle something like that, but she didn't actually carry the child, but she wanted to be the parent that the child, you know, that had custody of the child. What do you think about that? Like that is, that is, that is, that is a very interesting situation. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you can see the arguments that each, parent could make mm-hmm. you know one parent says i i carried the child you know yes. how can you know i couldn't have a stronger bond you know with the child than literally delivering it and the other parent says well my reality i'm going to be able to show the child you know uh, experiences or i've experienced things that you know the child hasn't you know it, it my guess would be if i'm if i'm a judge facing that situation um i would be very very hesitant to give one parent um, a leg up or additional consideration on the basis of race, yeah. right? That is just a very tricky door uh, to open that you could see it having all kinds of, you know, unintended consequences. Um, you know, my experience is that once you are the legal parent, that the judges are going to be, you know, like I said, extremely hesitant or reluctant to give you a leg up, even if it's, you know, there are, there are parents who have adopted the biological parents of their spouse, such that the other spouse, you know, gave birth and, and had the child. Um, and the other parent isn't related at all, but, but adopted after the marriage. And in the divorce case, the courts treat them as if they're in the exact same position. Right. The adopted parent has has no less right to those children than the other. The courts the courts are going to be looking at you know kind of what I call the blocking and tackling the X's and O's. You know who's who's getting who's making breakfast in the morning. You know who's getting them to school on time. Who's buying their clothes. Who's making the doctor's appointments and dentist appointments and and taking them there. And who's going to the PTA meetings and who's helping them with their homework and signing them up for the extracurriculars. You know at the end of the day. Um, it, it may not be as, as, as sexy or headline catching as, um, you know, one parent being unfit or, you know, oh, this person's an alcoholic or, they're, you know, this or that. But kind of the everyday you know, parenting um, that, that folks are doing is, is, is going to decide, you know, it's going to influence the judge's decision a lot more um, than, you know, like I said, kind of the headline catching items. Okay. All right. So now after after this process, and you talked about how sometimes it can take a year on an average or even longer, um, we reach a marital settlement agreement versus a divorce settlement agreement. So are they different? Are they the same? What's the deal? Yeah, I, I think it's, I think those are the, those are the same. Um, you know, again, you know, the terminology can vary from place to place, but um, you know, I would call it a, a divorce settlement agreement or, or more than likely, they literally say settlement agreement on the top of the document of, of what we draft. Um, you know, it, it may be, you know, some people would call a marital agreement, um, you know, kind of like a, a prenuptial agreement that you signed during the marriage. So um, I think divorce, a divorce settlement agreement is probably the more common terminology that I would use there. Yeah. And you, you mentioned prenup. I want to say it, uh, just ask this question too, because a lot of people think, you know, they're against prenups. Like they think, well, if I start planning a prenup, then I'm basically saying our marriage isn't going to work, you know, and 
it's like planning for a divorce. But what are your thoughts about that? Why is a prenup so important? I know you talked about it a little bit. You touched on it earlier, but I want to really kind of, I guess, end with that. Like, why is that so very important? And is it like putting a taboo on the marriage if you start talking about it up front? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I understand that position because before I started practicing family law, I thought the same thing. You know, you're, you're, you're planning for, you know, you're planning for divorce. I think that, you know, people's, you know, prenuptial agreements have gotten a very bad rap. They've gotten a negative view because I think a lot of us, myself included, got our idea of what a prenup is from Hollywood, from movies and TV. And we think of a pre, we think of a prenup, we think of, you know, um, you know, an old rich man trying to keep his money away from his young gold digger spouse. Right. That's right. Most, that's just what <laughs> most of us think when we think about a prenup. Right. And, um, you know, then when I finally kind of, you know, dug into it, I mean, a prenuptial agreement, it's just, it's just a set of rules for how the couple's going to handle their finances, both during the marriage itself and, yes, also in the event that the marriage ends, which we all know happens 40 to 50% of the time. Um, and, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, if, if you, you can get a prenup that just deals with divorce, you can, you can certainly go out and get a prenup that says, all right, if we get divorced, here's what you get. Here's what I got. I get it. That's it. End of day. Sign it on the paper. We're done. I think that would be a shame. I think it's a real missed opportunity if that's the only thing that you put, you know, in, in your prenuptial agreement. I think that it is an opportunity, like I said, to, you know, get on the same page in terms of disclosure to answer questions about how you are going to handle your finances during the marriage, try to get out in front of these common, you know, arguments that, that couples have. Um, you know, I put, I put clauses in my, um, prenuptial agreement about, um, marriage counseling, for example, where if the marriage is, you know, is either some couples will say, all right, every year we have to do at least one marriage counseling session, just as a check-in. It doesn't have to be anything wrong. You know, let's just do like a health check on our marriage the same way that we would do, you know, a, a medical checkup or before either spouse is allowed to file for divorce. You got to do three counseling sessions or six counseling sessions. And you can, you're, you're only really limited by your creativity when it comes to a prenuptial agreement. And you can certainly put in clauses that actually help you stay married, not just plan for divorce. Um, and, and so that's one way to look at it. The other way is, is this, is you look at it like insur- insurance. You know, just because I go out and get life insurance, it doesn't make me any likelier to die. Right, I You see. know, in fact, 90% of marriage and family counselors say that a prenuptial agreement does not make you any likelier to divorce, to divorce than someone who doesn't have one. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I go get car insurance, I'm not going to start driving recklessly. It right. just means in the event that the worst happens, it doesn't have to mean a financial disaster, prepared. which is unfortunately what a lot of people see, you know, with the expense of a divorce case. I mean, not only does it take a year, but on average, it costs each spouse in a contested divorce $15,000. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a shame when you can like decide on the front end, here's what we believe is fair. And here are our priorities, you know, financially uh, as a couple. And here's going to be our understanding and come to that agreement when you still love each other and you're on the front end of your marriage. Um, and hopefully you put this document in, in, uh, in a drawer and you close it and you never have to open it up again. Okay. Um, but if you do, you could at least got, you know, a set of rules yeah. um, that the two of you agreed you can live by. Okay. 
All right. Now, Aaron, how can people reach out to you? How can they find you, hear more from you real quickly before we go? Yeah, absolutely. We are, we are, you know, my divorce law practice is at AaronThomasLaw.com. Um, and we've set up a whole separate website for the prenup because I am, I'm passionate about it. Right now, we're at georgiaprenups.com. Um, and, you know, in the next month, we're expanding. We will be at prenups.com. We're expanding out to other states. So uh, come drop us a line, uh, you know, shoot me an email there, you know, reach us out on the contact form. We've got uh, a book on Georgia prenups. It's called Seven Financial Strategies for Building a Rock Solid Marriage. Please come over there, download it. It's free. Uh, love to try to give couples information to you know get them off on the right foot financially in their in the relationships. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron, for coming on the show. It's been very informative. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. Yeah. All right. And you guys, thank you for listening to the Lovers Lounge podcast, where we talk to experts like Aaron, attorney Aaron Thomas from Georgia. Very very informative show. Thank you so much for listening to the Lover's Lounge and tune in until next time. Peace. And please don't forget, gotta have love. Mm-hmm.